Elijah is discouraged. <laughs> Elijah is discouraged. I shouldn't be smiling, but I am. <laughs> Friends, in today's scripture passage, Elijah is discouraged. Elijah is an Old Testament prophet of the God of Israel, and he is deeply discouraged in today's passage. Maybe you know a thing or two about discouragement. How does God respond to us when we're discouraged? Before we get right into it, we need to fully grasp the, t- the extent to which Elijah is discouraged. He is not just discouraged as in the cults are two and six. That's really terrible. He's not just discouraged as in my favorite show was just canceled or my favorite dessert isn't available. He's more discouraged than that. In today's scripture passage, Elijah is in a cave of despair. Now, how did Elijah fall into this discouraged and hopeless state of being? Ironically, the roots of his discouragement are found in the soil of his success. His success is seen one chapter prior, in chapter 18, where Elijah experiences the sort of moment that makes him feel like he's on top of the world. You know this feeling, right? Perhaps it was the moment you laid eyes on that miracle of a child. Perhaps it was when you stared affectionately into the eyes of your soon-to-be spouse, declaring, I do. Perhaps you felt on top of the world, After receiving news that you got the job, you got the promotion, the business deal went through, the Cubs won the World Series, and your heart told your head, right now, you're on top of the world. I love watching the after party of the team that just won the World Series. Do you? Champagne shooting in all directions, elated laughter, large men embracing other large men without shame, jumping up and down, roaring like little children on Christmas morning. The kingdom of heaven is like winning the World Series every day. Do you know what it's like to be on top of the world? To feel as if the whole world is before you, beaming with hope and life, bursting with possibility and love. This is Elijah's mood during the events of chapter 18, moments before he finds himself in the cave of despair. Elijah has just pulled off the greatest ministry idea of his career. And when the idea works, his heart tells his head, you are on top of the world. I want to tell you the idea, but before I do, here's the context. Remember last week? Last week, King Solomon built God a glorious temple. That was four generations before Elijah. And at the end of that story, the Lord's glory filled the temple such that the priests were unable to carry out their duties. The Lord's glory was too thick, too tangible, too overwhelming. Now, I wrote this yesterday, and part of me thinks it's inappropriate, but part of me perhaps thinks it is appropriate. Here's what I wrote. The glory was too thick 
too tangible, too overwhelming. Imagine the worship team unable to finish a song they had prepared because the Lord shows up in such a profound way that it leaves all of us, including the worship team, stunned by what is happening. If this happened, then I would assume that our collective faith in God would shoot through the roof, wouldn't it? That's what I wrote yesterday. Now that's what happened with God's people in the story from last week. The Lord's glory filled the temple, and the collective faith of the people of Israel soared to new heights. 1 Kings 8, verse 66. They blessed the king and went back to their tents happy and pleased about all the good that the Lord had done for his servant David and for his people Israel. So when Elijah comes on the scene ten chapters later, four generations of kings have passed. They have forgotten the glory of the Lord that filled the temple. The United Kingdom of Israel have gone through a split. The north is called Israel, the south is called Judah. To make matters worse, Israel has lost its love for God. The God of Israel has been replaced by the so-called God named Baal. The current king and queen of Israel, Ahab and Jezebel, they've actually made the worship of Baal the official religion. So that's why Elijah is sent by God to the north. God sends Elijah to make things right. We might even say that God is discouraged, to use human terms. So God sends Elijah to get the attention of God's children, to call them to repentance so that they return to the Father's loving embrace and purpose for their life. Now it's many years into Elijah's prophetic career, and near the end of his career, he finally gets his greatest ministry idea ever. Here's the idea. You can read all about it later in chapter 18. His idea is to fill Lucas Oil Stadium with spectators from all over Israel. Well, since Lucas Oil hadn't been designed and built yet, the ancient equivalent was a mountain, Mount Carmel. So once there's a massive crowd, the prophets of Baal, this is what they're to do. This is his idea. They're to set up an altar with two bulls on it, and then the prophet of Yahweh, Elijah, will do the same. Now, this is important. They are not to light the altar on fire. Instead, each side will call on the name of its God, and the God who answers with fire, that's the real God. That's his idea. He pitches the idea to King Ahab, who, by the way, had been trying to catch and kill Elijah for quite some time. Surprisingly, when Elijah shows up on his front door, Ahab buys it. He buys the idea. His curiosity gets the best of him. So Elijah's idea is put into motion, and Ahab gathers 450 prophets of Baal. They, they set the wood down. They put two bulls on it, but they don't light fire to it. And Elijah, the prophet of Yahweh, does the same. He sets the altar up, and this time Elijah actually pours water. He floods the altar with water. And then they are to call out to their God to see which one will set fire, to see which one is the real God. 
So early in the morning, the Baal prophets get to work. From morning to midday, they cry out to Baal's name, Great Baal, answer us! But it doesn't work. Then they do a little dance around the altar, and they perform all sorts of rituals that they think will make their God happy. But that doesn't work either. Still no answer, still no fire, despite their many words. Meanwhile, Elijah plays it calm and cool. He watches as the prophets busy themselves with their efforts to please God. He observes that it's not working. He notices the crowds shifting in their seat, uncomfortable, beginning to question their faith in Baal. And then Elijah goes to work. He starts by gathering everyone's attention. Then he simply says a prayer, short and sweet. No repetitious chants, no formal liturgy, no ecstatic rituals, no cutting like the Baal prophets, no bloodshed, just a short and sincere prayer is all it takes. Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are the God of Israel and that I am your servant. Answer me so that this people will know that you, Lord, are the real God and that you can change their hearts. Then the Lord's fire fell. It consumed the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the dust. It even licked up the water in the trench. All the people, all the people saw this and fell on their faces. The Lord is the real God. The Lord is the real God, they exclaimed. That's 1 Kings 17, verse 36 to 39. The people of Israel were again on top of the world. Like when the glory of the Lord filled Solomon's temple four generations ago. The people of Israel were again on top of the world. Like when the Lord led them out of Egypt, ex-slaves running to freedom. Because of God's great acts of grace and love, Israel was again on top of the world. And you better believe Elijah was too. Do you know what it's like to be on top of the world because of God? That brings us near the end of chapter 18. But if you recall, in the next chapter, Elijah is deeply discouraged. That's where we're headed. How could Elijah's mood change so quickly from being on top of the world to feeling like the world is on top of him? crushing him, cornering him into a corner of confusion and despair. The key to understanding how the mood shifts comes at the chapter's transition. Last verse of chapter 18. The Lord's power strengthened Elijah. He gathered up his clothes and he ran in front of Ahab until he came to Jezreel. Now, that might not mean that much to you. Let me explain it. Why would Elijah run to Jezreel? He ran because he was elated. He was on top of the world. He had just tasted the sweetness of victory. He ran to Jezreel because Jezreel was the capital city. He assumes that the capital city that once wanted him dead will now sing his praises 
after the miracle at Mount Carmel. Israel had seen the light, after all. They had professed their faith in the real God publicly. So Elijah runs to Jezreel, and that's how chapter 18 ends. But then, first two verses that come next, we discover that Elijah's expectations fall flat. The city does not welcome him home. They do not throw him a party. Amazingly, despite his leadership in the most wondrous spectacle on Mount Carmel, Elijah is still hated. The king and queen return to their murderous desires. They even double down on their threats. May the gods do whatever they want to me if by this time tomorrow you are not dead. Now even more amazing is the fact that the people of Israel lack the courage and the faith to defend Elijah. After they had just witnessed the miracle of Mount Carmel, There was not even a small crowd of protesters. No placards, no picket signs, no resistance. The people of Israel just returned to their life as usual before the miracle. They returned to life as usual as if that sign from God had never happened. They were on top of the world just moments ago because of God, because they experienced God's realness, God's victory, God's power. And then... They returned to life as usual, as if that experience never happened. Do you know that reality? Do you suppose that still happens in today's church? In reaction to Israel's fickleness, Elijah's on-top-of-the-world feeling turns upside down rather quickly. That brings us to 1 Kings 19, our scripture text for today. I'll read from the Common English Bible. Friends, hear the word of the Lord. Ahab told Jezebel, king and queen, all that Elijah had done, how he had killed all of Baal's prophets with the sword. Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah with this message, May the gods do whatever they want to me if by this time tomorrow I haven't made your life like the life of one of them. Elijah was terrified. He got up and ran for his life. He arrived at Beersheba in Judah and left his assistant there. He himself went further on into the desert, a day's journey. He finally sat down under a solitary broom bush. He longed for his own death. It's more than enough, Lord. Take my life, because I'm no better than my ancestors. He lay down and slept under the solitary broom bush. Then, suddenly, a messenger tapped him and said, Get up, eat something. Elijah opened his eyes, and he saw bread baked on glowing coals. And a jar of water was right by his head. He ate and drank and then went back to sleep. The Lord's messenger returned a second time and tapped him. Get up, the Lord's messenger said. Eat something because you have a difficult road ahead of you. Elijah got up, ate and drank, 
and went refreshed by that food for 40 days and nights until he arrived at Horeb, God's mountain. There he went into a cave and spent the night. The Lord's word came to him and said, Why are you here, Elijah? Elijah replied, I've been very passionate for the Lord God of heavenly forces because the Israelites have abandoned your covenant. They have torn down your altars. They have murdered your prophets with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they want to take my life too. The Lord said, Go out. Stand at the mountain before the Lord. The Lord is passing by. A very strong wind tore through the mountains and broke apart the stones before the Lord. But the Lord wasn't in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord wasn't in the earthquake. After the earthquake, there was fire, but the Lord wasn't in the fire. After the fire, there was a sound, thin, quiet. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his coat. He went out and stood at the cave's entrance. A voice came to him and said, Why are you here, Elijah? He said, I've been very passionate for the Lord, God of heavenly forces, because the Israelites have abandoned your covenant. They have torn down your altars. They have murdered your prophets with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they want to take my life too. The Lord said to him, Go back through the desert to Damascus, and anoint Hazael as king of Aram. Also anoint Yehu, Nimshi's son, as king of Israel, and anoint Elisha from Ebel-Meholah, Shaphat's son, to succeed you as prophet. Whoever escapes from the sword of Hazael, Yehu will kill. Whoever escapes from the sword of Yehu, Elisha will kill. But I have preserved those who remain in Israel, totaling 7,000. All those whose knees haven't bowed down to Baal and whose mouths haven't kissed him. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. In chapter 18, Elijah feels like he's on top of the world. God's grace gives him a spiritual high, so to speak. In the same way, God's grace makes us feel like we're on top of the world at times. There are moments in our lives when we feel as if the whole world is before us, beaming with hope and life, bursting with possibility and love. These are holy moments worth treasuring and remembering and recounting to our children and our children's children. But in this dark present age, we will not live on the mountaintops. Instead, we will spend most of our lives in the valleys. As Christians, we will spend most of our lives in the shadow of the cross. And by the time chapter 19 rolls around, Elijah learns this lesson, lesson, and it's too much for him to bear. He's discouraged in every bone of his body. He's in a cave mood, so that's where he goes. He goes to a cave. How many men out there have a man cave? You know what I'm talking about, right? For some, it's a workshop. For some, it's a garage. For some, it's in the basement in front of the TV. 
When you get discouraged, you're in a cave mood. You don't want to talk about it. You don't want to think about it. You just want to enter your man cave and do the things you do there and avoid all the problems. We enter our caves for the same reason that Elijah entered his. We're discouraged for the same reason that Elijah is discouraged. Here are four of those reasons. First, we are discouraged because we're afraid. Like Elijah, we are afraid. We're afraid at what's happening on the outside. And we're afraid at what's happening on the inside. On the outside, we live in a world of terror, which leaves us terrorized and terrified at what the future holds. On the inside, we live in a world of temptation. Sometimes feels like an enemy is chasing us down, trying to ruin our lives with addiction and shame, pride, self-righteousness. In fact, sometimes it seems that the enemy has won, which creates even more fear as we consider the consequences. Second, we are discouraged because we are confused. Like Elijah, we are confused. We can't make sense of the world. We are disillusioned with reality, cynical at the current state of affairs. Elijah asks, why do hearts remain unchanged after the miracle on Mount Carmel? We ask, why does my child's heart remain unchanged after years of church attendance? And then we look in the mirror and if there is a drop of courage left in us, we ask, what's wrong with my own repentance? That my life is filled with the same problems today that it was filled with ten years ago. And for heaven's sake, why do such terrible things happen to wonderful people? Third reason we're discouraged. We're discouraged like Elijah is discouraged. Because we too feel the dull ache of depression and loneliness. We feel like there's nobody that understands us. And at times we feel like even God can't understand. Sometimes we're spun into self-pity. It's been said that self-pity is one of the mind's most vicious cycles. Are you familiar with the bottomless pit of self-pity? The fourth reason we're discouraged is because we, like Elijah, find ourselves exhausted. We are wiped. We are drained of energy. We are without strength. We are pulled in a thousand different directions, struggling just to keep our head above water. The unhealthy nature of our busyness is evident not just by the look on our calendars, but by the look of our souls. For some of us, we're exhausted for the same reasons that Elijah is exhausted. Like Elijah, we've used up all our ministry energy and efforts and all of our attempts to help others, all of our best ideas, and now we're tired. And we can't help but wonder, was it all worth it? These are some of the varied faces of discouragement. I'm positive that we all wear one of them from time to time. Fear, confusion, depression, exhaustion. We know all too well what it feels like to be crushed by the weight of the world. But perhaps what we don't know so well, what may strike us as strangely comforting, is the fact that one of God's greatest prophets, Elijah, knows what it feels like too. He too wears all of the varied faces of discouragement. 
as New Testament people, we know that Elijah is a shadow of Christ who bore the weight of the world's discouragement so that we wouldn't have to. So the question we must ask ourselves in our quest for God's good news is this. How does God respond to Elijah when he's discouraged? The answer will also reveal how God responds to us when we're discouraged. God does three things in response to Elijah's discouragement. Each thing comes with a corresponding call to action. There's God's response, and then there's Elijah's response. And Elijah, as Christians, we fit in the same boat. There's God's response to our discouragement, and then there's our response. We'll finish our time with these three sets of responses. Number one, the first thing God does in response to Elijah's discouragement is found in verse six. God responds not by giving him a lecture. God responds not by teaching him the five stages of grief. God responds not by diagnosing a spiritual problem. You know, Christians shouldn't be depressed. Rejoice in the Lord always. Why don't you memorize that verse this week? No, that's not how God first responds to Elijah's depression. Instead, the first thing God does is what? God cooks. God cooks for Elijah. Get up, eat something, the Lord's messenger says. Then Elijah opens his eyes and sees freshly baked bread and a jar of water. He ate and drank and went back to sleep. Friends, God delivers us from discouragement first by paying attention to our practical bodily needs. God recognizes that we are whole beings with bodies and minds and souls. God made us this way. So God responds with a holistic approach to our depression, starting with our bodies. By the way, that's how we should respond too when the people in our lives are depressed. God first ensures Elijah has his most basic bodily needs met. God cooks for him. God gives him food. God lets him take a nap. That's God's first response. And it comes with a corresponding call to action for us discouraged folks. The first call to action is simple. Get up and eat. God provides the bread and the water God ensures everything is there for our nourishment. The table is set, but we're the ones who have to eat and drink. We're the ones who have to exercise and do our therapy. We're the ones with the responsibility to use what God has given us for the well-being of our bodies. Now let's move on to God's second response to our discouragement. After feeding our bodies, God feeds our hearts. After feeding our bodies, God feeds our hearts, the center of our emotions. God asks Elijah, verse 9, why are you here, Elijah? In other words, do you want to talk about it? (laughs) Whenever God asks someone a question, it's not for God's benefit. It's not because God lacks the knowledge. It's for our benefit. So God asks Elijah, why are you here? He's opening up space for Elijah to talk about it. What brings you in today, Elijah? God's response here also invites a corresponding action from us. God has opened God's ears for you. 
what grace this is. Now you are invited to open your mouth to God. Talk to him. Tell God how you're feeling. Now I know that some of you didn't know that you had feelings. You do. If this is a foreign concept for you, then maybe you could start by praying the Psalms, which are found in the middle of your Bible. They are full of feeling words. 150 prayers in the Psalms. They span the range of human emotion. John Calvin calls them the anatomy of the human soul. They are there to help us learn how to talk to God, how to tell God how we're feeling. Now, as we do so, here's a saying worth remembering. Feelings are great servants, but terrible masters. Feelings are great servants, but terrible masters. That's why we must acknowledge our feelings, honestly, before God, before a trusted friend. Otherwise, they will soon become our masters. Are you cynical? Talk about it. Are you ashamed? Talk about it. Are you depressed? Talk about it. Talk to God. Talk to a trusted friend. Talk to a pastor or a counselor. These feelings will serve you well as you talk about them. But if you don't, you will serve these feelings, and they will become your master. We all know people for whom that's happened. God knows this. So God's second response to Elijah's discouragement is to open up God's ears, so to speak, and invite Elijah to tell God what's bothering him. So how does God respond to our discouragement? First, God cooks for us. Second, God asks us how we're doing. In response, we are called to get up and eat, and we are called to talk to God about how we're doing, really. Now, Elijah, if you remember the text, does just this. And then he discovers the third way that God delivers the discouraged. Verse 11, the Lord says, Go out and stand at the mountain before the Lord. The Lord is passing by. After feeding Elijah's body and heart, God feeds his spirit. As humans, we not only have a physical nature, and a psychological nature, but we also have a spiritual nature. And God's holistic approach to dealing with Elijah's depression, he ends by focusing on the spiritual nature. He calls Elijah out of his cave of complaint and onto the mountain of the Lord where God promises to pass by. Have you ever stood on top of a mountain? Maybe you've pulled over at a scenic road and paused for a while. What happens to you spiritually when you do this? In my experience, you gain perspective. You begin to see how vast and broad and lovely the created world is, and therefore how vast and broad and lovely God, the Creator, is. So God's last response to Elijah's discouragement is to call him out of the pit of self-pity and into the landscape of divine perspective. Now what about that phrase, the Lord is passing by? This does not mean what it sounds like in English. God isn't merely offering a friendly wave of the hand as he passes by on the other side of the road. Rather, this is the biblical language of revelation. 
It's the language of theophany. God shows up to Elijah. And God makes God's invisible presence tangible, touchable, noticeable, real, like the glory of the Lord that filled the temple such that the priests were unable to carry out their duties. God responds to Elijah's discouragement by making God's presence real. Now, God doesn't utilize flashy and noisy things to do so, for the Lord wasn't in the wind or in the earthquake or in the fire, but after the fire, there was a sound, thin, quiet, like a still, small voice. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his coat because God's real presence is simply too much for us to bear all at once. Have you sensed God's real presence? Are you familiar with that still, small voice? Paul was. The Apostle Paul of the New Testament was soaked in that presence. And Paul wants us to be also. For it's God's real presence that is the final, perfect antidote to discouragement. That's why Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4, But we have this treasure in clay jars, so that it may be made clear to us that extraordinary power belongs to God. It does not come from us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body of death, the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be made visible in our bodies. Today, we're going to pray for the persecuted church. This uh, tradition began in 1967, I believe. People designated, churches designated a day to pray for the persecuted church. People who are persecuted, but not forsaken. Friends, I, I read a story, I won't share it with you this morning, I read a story this week of a woman in Pakistan who converted from her Muslim family upbringing to Christianity. She, my friends, was persecuted in ways that we will never know. But she was not forsaken. She was afflicted, but not crushed. She carried in her body the death of Jesus, but the life of Jesus was made visible to others through her ministry. So what corresponding action does God's final response call forth? It's a call to mission. For Elijah, it's the word that the work is not yet done. So go anoint a king and a prophet to succeed you. For us, I think verse 7 is helpful. Get up, verse 7 says, because you have a difficult road ahead of you. Friends, in response to God's grace, who delivers the discouraged, we are called to get up and get on with the mission of Christ. For we have a difficult road ahead of us. But now we enter this difficult road in a completely different frame of mind than when we started today's journey. Before, we were far too discouraged, and the road seemed too difficult. But God has delivered us from discouragement. God has met our physical needs, our emotional needs, our spiritual needs. God has called us out of our caves of complaint and given us perspective. 
And it turns us turns out that we are not alone, but we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses called the global church who are companions in the mission of Christ. What's more, God tangibly reminds us of the divine presence through the breaking of the bread, which Calvin calls the real presence of Christ. That's what Calvin calls the Eucharist. We're reminded of that presence in bread and wine as the Spirit whispers his love to us through the still, small voice. So let us receive this bread and this cup with complete confidence in the victory of God, won ultimately through the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. Amen? Let this bread refresh us for the difficult road ahead. But fear not, the final outcome is secure. Christ's kingdom is unshakable, and the gates of hell, we are told, will not prevail against it. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.